Peter, are you on Twitter? I am not on Twitter. Ah, uh, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> This is Densely Speaking, Conversations about Cities, Economics, and Law. I'm Jeffrey Lin. I'm an economist at the Philadelphia Fed. I'm Greg Schill. I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. Hey, Greg. Hey, Jeff. Today, we're talking about the past and future of driving in cities. Our guest today is Peter Norton. Peter is an associate professor of history in the Department of Engineering and Society at the University of Virginia. He's the author of Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City, and the new book, Autonorama, The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jeff. I'm excited to be here, and it's good to be back with Greg as well. Thanks, Peter. Great to see you again. Peter, you're a historian in a department of engineering and society. What is that situation like, and how did that come about? Well, Jeff, it's a dream come true because, to me, we can't tell how good the engineering is until it's out there in the world, and yet that aspect of engineering does not get very much attention typically in most engineering schools. I'm happy to be in an engineering school where the engineering department itself or the engineering school itself recognizes we can't tell how good the engineering is until it's out in the world and being used. Sometimes engineering is defined as applied science. Well, applied means applied by people. And that means engineering is really a social science. You know, until it's in the world, it's just experiments. It's just science, really. So a lot of the mistakes, including some of the mistakes we talked about today, are attributable to a false dichotomy between engineering and society. And in my department, we are trying to bring those things back together so that we don't make those mistakes the way we have done. You know, it doesn't make sense, for example, to quote unquote, solve transportation problems by putting expressways through the middle of cities. But from an engineering point of view, that might look logical. And so we need the social scientists, including historians and other social scientists, to study those dynamics and to help us learn from them. That sounds amazing. It sounds really special. And it sounds like something that we need more of. I agree. I have to say that my own engineering school sometimes acts like they're sorry they got stuck with us. <laughs> we just lost a dean who spent five years trying to get rid of us. It looks like we may be on a better footing now, finally, but it's not immediately recognized. There are engineers who are trained to imagine that the social science is very relevant to what they do, but this audience knows better than that. To me, it's self-evidently important to understand the connections between engineering and society, but I would submit that they already understand the connections in a narrow sense, which is that engineering has always had a close nexus to business. And the idea that inventions must be marketable, which ultimately means they have to be useful to a consumer, if that's included in the kind of objective function of engineering, then it doesn't seem like much of a stretch to me to say that that technology or innovation should also be socially useful and not just useful to an individual consumer. I agree, but I would add that this business connection with engineering, which of course is as old as engineering itself, is highly hazardous and 
entails the necessity of including other social sciences in this cluster, because otherwise we tend to have engineering that produces what's profitable, whether it is desirable or beneficial or not. So, for example, some of the engineering around autonomous vehicles looks like public relations and some of the public relations looks like engineering. And that's because the business and the engineering have become intertwined and enmeshed. And so we need other kinds of social scientists or historians to pull them back apart together so that we recognize, for example, that a lot of the interstate highway system was frankly built to sell roads and sell cars. I'm not making that up. That's what the road builders and the car companies said it was for. And we need somebody who can step out of that deal and say, here's what the deal is. This is what they say the highways are for. They Some of the, take, for example, the National Automobile Dealers Association said in the 1950s, we need road bills because otherwise congestion deters people from buying cars. Now, buying cars is not the goal of society, but it was the goal of the National Automobile Dealers Association, and it was why they lobbied hard for the interstate highways. So yes, the business angle is social. But the business angle doesn't give us people who will say, did you know that this story we're being told about highways solving congestion is also connected with a story we're not hearing about highways are necessary to get people to buy more cars? Peter, I take your books as trying to understand why and how car dependency came to be so central to American society and to our cities. Fighting traffic is history, covering the early 20th century as cars were first entering cities. Autonorama's is outlook today as increasing attention is being directed at the potential of automated vehicles. What do you think about that characterization? And then overall, what do you think history is telling us about the outlook for autonomous vehicles in our cities? Well, Jeff, I think it's a very fair characterization. I think as a historian, my qualifications to talk about the future, if any, are open to debate. After all, I don't know the state of the art technology as well as engineers do, not by a long shot, but at least I can see long trajectories and I can see recurrent patterns that can be missed in the fixation with what's going on right now or within the last few years alone. And that, I think, helps me perhaps see some trends that may give me a chance to just say, you know what, we've been around this block before, and here's what we learned last time. That's great. Let's start with the basics. What is Autonorama? It's a funny name, and it's got a story to it, and I commend you for saying it right the first time. So the book, Autonorama, is arguing that this is the fourth time, namely this autonomous vehicles promotion that we've been seeing over the last decade or more, is the fourth time we've been through an iteration of a cluster of promotions that argue that we are going to be arriving at a auto-utopian future where you can drive everywhere at any time without delay and park for free when you get there. You know, it's being presented to us like this is something new and that it's so new, in fact, that history is now irrelevant to it. But as a historian, what I see in the promotion of the supposed autonomous vehicle future is I'm seeing the same promotion that you could see 
at Futurama 1 in 1939. That was General Motors' spectacle at the New York World's Fair. It's very much the same kind of thing we saw 25 years later at Futurama 2 in New York City again. In 1964, General Motors had an exhibit called Futurama 2. It reminds me also of the 1990s when we saw smart highways, which I think we've forgotten now, were sold as a way to end congestion and even to deliver self-driving cars. They would be self-driving thanks to the smart road rather than the smart car. And now the fourth iteration, and every time it's 25 years after the previous one, which you could call Futurama 4, but because it's all about autonomous vehicles, I chose to call it Autonorama. So what it sounds like is recurring periods of some kind of marketing campaign. But what exactly is being marketed? It's not like they're trying to sell us the latest model. It's something different. What is that? Exactly. It's a particular kind of marketing. It's more than just marketing, and it's also a special version of marketing. It's a marketing that is selling us not so much a specific product, although specific products are all of a piece with it. It's selling us a future where in order to get to that future, we'll have to consume a lot, not just automobiles, but also the tech that automates these automobiles and also the infrastructure it takes to get there. And the people who are selling this future to us are the same people who are selling us the vehicles, the tech and the infrastructure. And that is the same as it was for the previous three Futuramas as well. Each time the credibility that this amazing future is possible is enabled by state-of-the-art technology that really is amazing. And because the -the state-of-the-art technology is amazing, it persuades people that these improbable futures are actually possible and worth pursuing. What was the vision that was being sold, say, at Futurama 1? And how does that differ from the vision that's being sold? Well, to begin with that answer, I'd like to stress that, in fact, these futures are remarkably similar. So whether it's Futurama 1 or Futurama 4 or any of the others, the vision is of a future where car dependency works. It's of a future where we can drive anywhere at any time and park for free when we get there. It's a vision where you don't need to get around by any other mode of transportation because the vehicles are so perfect in all that they can do for us. I have to hasten to add that there are certainly lots of proposals for autonomous vehicles that are not selling us that kind of future. These are the special purpose applications that you'll see proposed sometimes for niche applications. But the predominant message is that autonomous vehicles will solve everything, at least in terms of urban mobility and also be perfectly harmonious with walking uh, for those who still want to walk. To get to your question about the differences, well, there are differences. And one of them is that that as values change, you start to see new angles on what's getting sold. So in 1939 and 1940, when Futurama 1 was being sold to us, it was about congestion-free driving and to a lesser extent, collision-free driving. By the 1990s, those two things were still the prominent ones, but you started to see in the 1990s, that's Futurama 3, sustainability started to emerge as sort of a third place value. And now it's a prominent one and it's 
beautifully captured in the title of a 2017 General Motors report called Zero Crashes, Zero Emissions, Zero Congestion. So they're selling us those three visions. Because perfection is being sold zero, 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 then the effect is that this is supposed to attract us so much that we're willing to invest an extraordinary amount of public and private capital to get to that perfect destination. So basically, the common thread sounds like it's, you know, you get all the upsides of mass automobility, private travel that you control, you know, what time you leave, and you have point-to-point capability, don't have to walk or wait for a bus or anything. In addition, you're in a climate-controlled vehicle where you can listen to whatever music you want or talk on the phone nowadays anyway, if not Futurama 1. And you're going to be able to do that without the costs that we've come to expect as the price of living in a car-based society. Whether we talk about it in those terms or not, that's you don't expect not to hit traffic, especially rush hour. But if you could, to your point about Futurama 4 or, or Autonorama, maybe there'll still be traffic, but if I can nap or watch Netflix then I don't care as much, right? Because I get some of my time back. It's like, remember Snackwell's cookies from the 90s? <laughs> I don't know those personally. So they were fat-free and they were really tasty. What they did have was a ton of sugar, but they didn't <laughs> mention that in the marketing. But the basic idea, I think, is common in marketing, right? That you get all the benefits without the downsides. What this reminds me most of is political speech, that this is persuasion. This is about coalition building. This is about selling a vision of the future and bringing along with it a specific set of of policy packages or policy proposals. Do you think that that's a good kind of framework for thinking about Futuramas in the past? And do you think that that's a good framework for thinking about the motivations of the people who are involved in selling these visions of the future? Yeah, the political speech analogy is a good one. In fact, I think it's often very close and has been close, especially since, well, really since Futurama 1 even. A good analogy is that when President Eisenhower was leaving office in 1961, he famously gave a farewell address where he cautioned Americans that the fact that we've been in a standoff with the Soviet Union at that point for well over a decade meant that there had developed a permanent arms establishment, his term for the contractors who contracted with the Pentagon, who had developed an interest in this unwinnable war, which they were in effect winning because it gave them a permanent market. And this in turn gave them a close relationship with Congress, which was voting the money that the Pentagon needed to buy these weapons. And the result was what Eisenhower famously called a military-industrial complex, which this Republican five-star general said was a threat to democracy. There's a very close analogy to be made, and I'm certainly not the first to make it, that says that the people who were waging war on traffic congestion were also waging an unwinnable war, but winnable in the sense that if you're in the business, you're winning because you're getting a permanent, guaranteed, large customer with deep pockets, namely the federal government. And by 1970, even the Wall Street Journal was comparing the interest groups that were waging this war on congestion by building ever more roads and highways. It compared them with the military-industrial complex and even said they were bigger than the military-industrial complex. And you could see this 
becoming quite vivid in Futurama 3, where the defense contractors, panicking because the Cold War was ending, started to say things like, well, we'll have to wage war on traffic congestion now. In fact, Rockwell International, one of the biggest defense contractors of the 90s, released a series of ads that said, we're using military technology to fight traffic congestion. And it was very explicitly an effort to switch from the Cold War market, which they feared was ending. They didn't know that the U.S. has a very good record of maintaining a sense of danger around the world. And in the 90s, it can convert to waging war on traffic congestion as well. So Futurama 3 was very much like a Cold War in the sense that it was an unwinnable war, this time not against world communism, but against traffic congestion. And unwinnable wars are a wonderful thing for the people who sell the weapons to fight them. I'd like to talk for a moment about the appeal of that to people who buy them. So not state and federal agencies that are procuring contracts for highways, but consumers who ultimately have to buy cars and gas and all assume all the other private costs of automobility. Often with marketing, there's puffery on the part of the firm trying to profit off of it, but that doesn't necessarily imply that it's fraudulent. It might just mean that they're putting their best foot forward. So I guess, doesn't the car have intrinsic appeal? It absolutely requires social coordination to make it useful to build roads. In theory, the roads could be built privately. In practice, it's much easier to do with a, a strong state role. So it does need some social coordination, but just as a product that is sold, like detergent or iPods, doesn't it have a kind of intrinsic appeal? And so how much should we care about the motivations of the people that are selling it as opposed to the interests of people who are buying it? That is such an important question because there's a really important distinction that has to be made. So the automobile began as a special purpose transport tool. It was sold that way. By that, I mean it was sold as a way for the farmer to get goods to the market. It was sold as a way for the physician to get to the patient. In other words, it was sold as a practical tool or as a leisure tool, like a way to get to the countryside on a Sunday afternoon. And in all of those senses, the automobile was packaged and sold as a tool that does certain jobs, but not as an all-purpose mobility solution. And when it was sold as a tool, that worked quite well until the 1920s, when the automobile manufacturers very explicitly noticed and said this, and they recorded their words in writing, that way of selling cars limited their market. There were going to be people for whom this special purpose transport tool wasn't necessary. And also people were going to only buy a car when they needed it and only replace it when it wore out. And so what we saw was a reinvention of the car, and the effort was deliberate, explicit, and led from the manufacturers. The first company to really recognize that this redefinition was necessary was General Motors. They had a very ingenious engineer, about the number two man there, named Charles Kettering, who said Ford's big mistake is that they have been selling a car that is intended to keep the consumer satisfied, that it does the job, it's reliable, and it's easy to maintain. And that limits their market. And he said, and these are his words, not mine, keep the consumer dissatisfied. That's the title of a 1929 article he wrote for his business colleagues. And he said, when you keep consumers dissatisfied, that's what makes them come back 
even when their car is still working well. So that sounds like a classic market innovation story where one firm sees a way to transform the position of a product from being one that's useful or appealing to a small group of consumers to one that's more broadly useful. So you mentioned the utilitarian origins of the automobile. So one could say something similar for Blackberries, the first mass-produced smartphones, which of course were totally displaced by the iPhone and other touchscreen phones that were more appealing really initially to consumers, but now are standard for business communications as well. And so I guess what I want to bring out here is, is that intrinsically bad that a company would mobilize its resources to try to make more profits by changing the position of their product to make it more profitable and more widely desirable? Or is there something about cars that distinguishes them from mobile phones or any other type of product that's gone from niche to mass appeal? Great question. So I wouldn't use the term intrinsically bad simply because we expect businesses to seek profit. That's what they're for. Corporations have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to pursue profitable business models and opportunities. And therefore, we should not be surprised that General Motors or any company is eager to find new ways to generate more profits. So I wouldn't call it bad in that sense. But I do think there's a distinct effect that comes with packaging automobiles as consumer goods with the hope that people consume ever more of them. And that's because we live together in urban communities, large and small, and that has implications, right? So if somebody decides that they really do need mouthwash to be acceptable in mixed company, and they therefore gargle with mouthwash every day, I would say they're probably wasting their money, but at least they're not really causing much harm. You know, there's the discarded bottles and so on, but setting that aside, it's very different if we have a society where people are consuming not just cars, but also driving. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. So it's not just that cars are problematic, it's that driving is problematic. And the difference is important because if people own a car, but they use it for limited transport needs because they have other transport choices too, like there's good transit service or they have a bike and there's good places to bike, that's one thing. But if they also have a car and they live in a society where the world has been physically reconstructed around them to incentivize and almost require driving, as one of your journal articles has demonstrated is fact in this country, well, then we have major implications whereby my choice to own a car and to drive is not a solitary personal individual choice with implications just for me anymore. It's a social choice. It's a choice with social implications where if the State Department of Transportation makes sure that I can get to my destinations on time because it will invest in the road infrastructure necessary for me to get there, that's going to make it harder for the next person to get to the same destination in any other way. So yes, I do think there's a difference. So I think a common thing you might hear is that cars are popular in the United States, right? A lot of people own cars, they drive. Many people drive every day. People like the suburbs, right? Lots of people live in the suburbs. What's so bad about designing our cities around that kind of lifestyle? 
I'd like to take that question in two parts. The first one being that people do indeed generally really do like to have a car. And in most of the world, practically all of the world, as soon as people can afford a car, they generally want to buy one. I don't think that's very surprising. I think that's a very different thing, though, from talking about what kind of world we want to live in. And I think it's a very different thing than saying people won't prefer to drive everywhere for everything. And in fact, when we create environments where you can drive everywhere for everything, we tend to also create environments where you can't get around by other means. And so I'm actually very skeptical of arguments that say we have the status quo in the United States because that's what Americans wanted. That's what they preferred. They may have wanted to own a car, but that's not to say they wanted to live in an environment where they can't get around by other means. I actually look at uh, reports that come from state departments of transportation and other transportation authorities. And even in recent reports, I'll find experts saying, well, Americans obviously prefer to drive. Just look at what they actually do. 90 some percent of all trips are in a car. And I think that's a very elementary error and a surprising one because I think it's pretty obvious that what people choose to do depends on the choices that they have. And if the only good choice is driving, then of course they're going to drive. So I don't think we can tell what people prefer from what they're already doing if the environment deters everything except driving. I couldn't agree with that more. I think that shows the limitations of identifying current behavior and simply assuming that it reveals a preference about desirable or desired behavior as opposed to you know what is possible within the bounds of present circumstances. Can I just follow up a little bit on this? So I also agree with your point, right, that constraint choice is what we're observing. And if we don't account for those constraints, then we can't accurately infer what people actually prefer. I think that's going to be really familiar to economists in our listening audience. What's kind of interesting to me, and I wonder if you could think about this a little bit, is this sort of continuing durable political support for more highway spending, for example. So in the recent infrastructure bill, highway spending was a big part of that bill. And it was maybe the least controversial part of that bill. And I wonder, is that reflecting the continuing success of Futuramas? Is that reflecting the influence of industry on the legislative process? How can we square that circle? If people want sort of like more diverse types of communities and more diverse types of getting around, why is highway spending still so popular? Great question. Well, we have the fact that for most Americans in most settings across the country, with remarkably few exceptions, being carless is really debilitating. It really limits what you can do. And it can be a source of anxiety to find that your commute to work is getting harder and harder every day. And in that kind of environment, it is not surprising that people welcome the proposal to add a new lane or otherwise increase the road capacity. Now, I'm not arguing, though, that that popular wish to make driving actually work better is the political power behind the enormous spending on road capacity. 
that really does reflect the political influence of the industry groups that sell the roads. I mean, the ones that build the roads, that maintain the roads, and that use the roads are organized lobbies that are very influential, that spend a lot of money, and they're not spending the money because they like to spend money. They're spending the money because they have political agendas to pursue, and they pursue them very smartly. By that, I mean they don't just demand more road capacity. They make sure that the road design standards, the engineering standards, the evaluation standards, the performance metrics are all designed around what they want them to be. I think it'd be useful to have a specific example of that. And I could offer many, and I know you both could as well. I'm going to offer one. So state departments of transportation and other authorities define conditions where you can't drive the speed limit because of other cars on the road, because the road is congested. They define that as delay. So if the speed limit is 50 miles an hour and you can only go 40, that's delay. And that delay is then translated into a dollar cost based on the value of the vehicle occupant's time. And then that dollar cost is supposed to be a justified public expenditure so that you won't have that delay anymore, which is a really fascinating little stream of thought because, of course, who's causing the delay? The person driving the car is causing the delay to everybody else who's driving a car. Who says that going 50 miles an hour is a public priority that must be achieved with public expenditures? And furthermore, isn't it obvious how sort of self-defeating this is? Because when you enable people to drive faster, what do you do? Well, of course, you encourage them to recalculate distances such that a greater distance is now okay. So if you can drive faster, well, living let's say 20 or 30 miles from work becomes okay, even if that wasn't okay before. And so that means, of course, now there's going to have to be still more road capacity supplied to meet this because, I mean, we all learned probably in school that the time it takes you to get from your point of departure to your destination is a function of two things, namely your speed and the distance between the two points. And yet our engineering standards pretend that distance is not part of the equation. They only deal with the speed part. And so while they're spending billions of dollars trying to keep the speed high, the effort is being constantly negated by the distances growing between the destinations. This is what urban sprawl is. And so we have public policies that actually build in this extraordinary expense to endlessly build more road capacity because the road capacity, of course, can't keep up as long as we disregard distance. There's a vicious cycle here where because we've designed our cities so that you a car is a necessity to get around, that makes the solution to those problems more spending on getting people around in cars. Yeah. In fact, I'd go a step further and say it also builds in the notion that it's possible to really have a city where driving is the only way to practically get around to most destinations without having extreme congestion or extreme expenses, wasted space, and so on. In other words, I don't think car dependency and cities work together. That's old news that goes back 60, 70 years. But we are still trying to make them work together. And to make them work together is an endless pursuit of public expenditures 
private necessities like buying, owning, maintaining, insuring, and fueling a car and wasted energy in an era when we're facing a climate emergency that should be compelling us to find much less energy intensive ways of getting around. I want to circle back to both the models that you were describing as well as your contribution as a historian in this book as well as your prior work. So the models that DOTs and other engineering focused organizations use that considers only the costs of congestion is maybe internally justifiable, but it doesn't really survive if you push on it because I think, again, internally, it is logical to just build more and more and faster and faster roads, but that doesn't consider the externalities of that process. And if you're going to rigorously model not just the costs of congestion, but the costs of mitigating congestion by expanding roads, in addition to the fact that, as you both mentioned, that that tends to be self-defeating over time because it induces more demand, it also generates additional costs in terms of emissions and traffic deaths and delay for people who are not driving and so on. I've never seen them incorporated into the types of models that justify enhanced road building. So I don't think the models are serious, frankly, but they are pervasive. In terms of your contribution on this really critical question of urban transportation as a historian, this interest group story that you have told very effectively about the motordom, right, as they self-identify the various interest groups starting in his 20s. It has a different character, I think, 100 years ago than it would today from a consumer or a voter perspective, right? Because 100 years ago, most people didn't have cars. Most people were reliant on either streetcars or walking, some in, in rural areas, you know, perhaps horses, to get around. And the car was an object of desire, like an aspiration. And then today, Last I checked, there were more families that had three cars than either one or zero cars. And so it is still the case that there are many places, including places we don't associate with transit use, where a lot of people don't have car access, like Detroit, which I think about 26% of households don't have car access. So it's facile to speak of America as a nation of drivers or something like that. And that's not what I'm claiming. But if you were to pull like your median consumer or median voter today, they actually do rely on car transportation already. It's not an aspiration, it's a reality. A hundred years ago, that wasn't the case. So how does the marketing change over time? How does the position of the issue change? There's an interesting political economy here, but it just seems like the appeal should change over time because the audience is different. I think you've beautifully captured the transformation of the automobile from a special purpose transport tool, whether as a luxury or for utilitarian purposes, but particular utilitarian purposes, into an all-purpose mobility necessity. And that transition was a transition that was recognized as necessary by motordom long before it happened. And I think that's an angle of it that has been significantly underappreciated. In other words, a lot of people recognized or would agree that today the USA has become too car dependent. But what's not recognized is that car dependency was packaged and sold as a business model. I mentioned Charles Kettering before. Charles Kettering wanted car dependency to become the future, and he saw that vision long before car dependency actually existed. 
And so the second stage, the stage where everybody has to have a car or most people have to have a car to take care of essential needs like getting to work, getting to school, getting to the supermarket, that was an aspiration of the businesses that had goods to sell if we were to strive to get there. They sold us the goods that got us to that destination. And the beauty for them of that destination is you never actually really get there. You never get to a world where it actually works well. And that means there's always more to be sold. I want to ask a question that will maybe help me understand a little bit about the nature of the mistakes that we've made in the past. And one thing I'm kind of interested in is to what extent we can think of these as active policy mistakes or passive policy mistakes. There may be a number of entry points here. Maybe it'd be useful to think about this historically. And especially as cars were first entering cities in the early 20th century, what were the kinds of mistakes that we made? And how would you think about them as they apply to policy decisions that we might be making now around autonomous vehicles? Well, I think a lot of the things that were done about it weren't mistakes in the sense that the people who made the decisions were not erring. They knew what they were doing. I would call them mistakes in the sense that they didn't serve the public's needs particularly well. So, for example, in the early 20th century, and particularly after the mid-20s, the safety in streets was redefined such that you know a pedestrian who was hit by a motor car in the early 20s was an innocent person who had been injured by a motorist who should have been exercising more care because streets are for people. Well, that was redefined so that the pedestrian was much more likely to be blamed. And once that shift of blame occurs, then you're deterring pedestrians from using streets and encouraging drivers to drive fast because they belong there and the streets are for them. And similar redefinitions, which were mistakes in the sort of public interest point of view, but were not mistakes in the sense that businesses had a rational business interest in making these things happen. Another one was to redefine congestion such that congestion was now you can't drive your car fast, which is an interesting way to define congestion if you think about an alternative definition, which is people can't get to where they need to get as easily as they could before. Can we talk about that for a second? Yeah. We're here in this conversation, you know, we're really only concerned with the public interest, I think as opposed to earnings per share at General Motors. But what is it about streets that makes them undesirable candidates for the type of treatment that you are describing? So you see this come up in automated driving conversations as well. The notion that elevators used to have elevator operators, and now they don't. I've never found that persuasive. For one, they do have elevator operators still. It's called you because you're the one pushing the button. They don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. What floor yeah. you're going to. But even setting that aside, the other thing elevators have is dedicated right of way. So the elevator, unless there's a malfunction, which is very rare, malfunction of this type, it's not going to collide with another elevator. It's also not going to collide like with a person. So they're very safe. Let's distinguish, compare and contrast You know, streets with elevator shafts. Do they share common attributes? Are they more different than they are similar? Is the analogy useful or should we think about it in a different way? I think it's an excellent analogy if it's handled correctly. I agree with you, Greg, that the autonomous vehicle 
is not analogous with a elevator operator that's operated by the elevator occupant for a lot of reasons that you have explained very well already. I do think it's got good street analogies. You know, an elevator is a lot like a tram or a another vehicle on rails like a commuter train or a subway because it with rare exceptions, can't lose course and people know where the train will be. They can see the rails. They can be careful if they see rails. And, you know, a lot of trains have been driverless for a long time. The London tube, the subway in London, has had driverless trains since the 60s. You know, most of them had the operators even in the 60s, but they had some that were completely automated at that time, because automation is so much simpler if you have an elevator in an elevator shaft or a train on rails. The street is a very different phenomenon for obvious reasons. You have people who can freely move around in a lot of different directions on a lot of different vehicles, all using the same pavement. And unfortunately, in my view, one of the failures in the American experience with streets has been to try to make them into the equivalent of rails by excluding pedestrians from them and by inviting motor vehicle drivers to suppose that that pavement is entirely for them and therefore they can safely drive at high speed even in the middle of a city. So I agree that there is some really useful things for that elevator analogy. And I agree also that that elevator analogy is subject to some abuses and distortions. An idea that seems really important in both of your books is this asymmetry among road users. So pedestrians are just fundamentally more vulnerable on the road than drivers and cars. For a pedestrian, the worst case outcome here is serious injury or death. And for a driver, maybe it's minor inconvenience. And thinking about that asymmetry, I kind of wondered. If given that asymmetry, the most likely outcome under most alternative versions of history would have been for cars to take over streets, even if we hadn't had Futuramas and policy changes that pedestrians would have reacted to this asymmetry by yielding, you know, quote unquote, voluntarily to cars and drivers. And that only dramatic and strong policies protecting space for pedestrians or protecting the rights of other road users have maintained a different kind of balance of uses. What do you think about that argument? I think it's fascinating, important, thought-provoking, and I'll make a few observations. One is I think there's a lot of evidence that you're right. For example, in most countries where most people could afford a car, it wasn't long afterwards when regardless of interest groups, pressures on governments. We saw pedestrians just out of self-preservation yielding their access to the street, to the motor vehicles. But I do think there's more to it in the following sense. So we live in a country where at least a very large fraction of the population would like to think of this country as a democratic, liberal with a small l, inclusive society with respect for individual liberties and rights. And 
that value has justified legal traditions in this country that will sometimes protect people or vulnerable groups from the powerful in that way. So, of course, there's plenty of law, as Greg, of course, will know, that says that Yes, these vulnerable people are indeed more vulnerable, and that means that government has the job and the courts have the job of protecting these vulnerable people. And this fact, actually, you could find reflected in the prevailing law that governed streets right up till 100 years ago. So 100 years ago, and the case law on this is really settled, or it was 100 years ago, a pedestrian who strolled into the street at any point without bothering to look and who was then hit by a vehicle could count on suing and suing successfully the driver of that vehicle because the law, and at this point I'm talking about this would have been the common law tradition inherited from Britain, said that the operator of a vehicle on a street is the one who is responsible for creating the hazard and therefore is responsible for any injuries that ensue from operating that vehicle, even if the pedestrian isn't paying attention. Because as judges would say at that time, the pedestrian is not obliged to be on the alert for the motor vehicle operator. The motor vehicle operator is obliged to be on the alert for the pedestrian. So it actually took a deliberate, concerted, coordinated effort to get that law changed my first book, Fighting Traffic, goes into how that was done in some detail. But the short version of that is interest groups organized to make sure that that common law tradition of the streets was superseded by traffic ordinances that were written by motordom and adopted by cities that would say that pedestrians are restricted in their access to the street and that any improper use of the street under this new definition of proper and improper subjects the pedestrian to responsibility for their own injury in that case. So the short version of my answer to your question is that, yes, there is that tendency. In other words, there is that tendency for people who are vulnerable to concede their rights to the more powerful party. But there is also a countervailing tendency and a countervailing value that says that in a democratic society, we try to counteract that effect. And in this particular realm, the counteracting tendencies have been impeded by the organized efforts of the interest groups. On the historical contingency, so after World War II, lots of countries that didn't have a Futurama exhibit started embracing the car. This was basically the standard path in Europe and other places that had resources. And so today, it wouldn't surprise someone to learn that a country like the Netherlands has lower traffic deaths than the U.S. and that pedestrians are less vulnerable than in the U.S. But after World War II, the Netherlands and France, and the U.K., and Germany all embraced basically a similar vision to the U.S., not to suggest they're all the same, but but I think they were kind of directionally aligned in a way that is not true today. A lot of these countries have changed course. It's not the focus of either of your books, but I wonder if you could speak to that a bit and how the parallel lines of the U.S. and Europe have become skewed. It's a great question. And fortunately, I've been closely involved with a consortium of European transport historians for about a dozen years. And I've learned a lot through them about their experience in their countries. 
One thing that they've helped me appreciate is that the story varies by country and the differences tend to coincide with the scale of the automobile industry in that country. So Sweden was very car friendly and much more car friendly than Norway, which was quite restrictive of cars and driving for a long time. And of course, Norway and Sweden are, I would say, quite similar. But the difference can be explained by the very large auto sector in Sweden, and there was basically no such auto sector in Norway. So Germany, France, Italy, Britain, all of them had substantial automobile industries, and all of them became pretty car-friendly, in part because of that. Now, the Netherlands is an interesting example. Yes, it had a car industry, but it was a very small one. Maybe some listeners have heard of DAF, their small car company that now just makes trucks. Its influence was pretty minor. And still, the Netherlands did, after World War II, as you say, pursue some pretty serious road building. But there's another aspect of this, namely that between, say, 1945 and about 1990, the American influence was really pervasive in every aspect of society. And in fact, the Europeans directly imported American engineers and engineering firms and engineering experts, West Germany in particular, to just plug in American models you know, as they had been practiced in the US. There were rebellions against this. Finland drove the American engineers out with street protests. We don't want your traffic engineers in this country. We don't want you doing to Helsinki what you did to St. Louis and Cincinnati. So there was resistance to this. And the resistance was sometimes quite successful. And the best known case is the Netherlands, where from the late 60s through the 70s, the Netherlands really had a people power revolution against car domination and the Dutch themselves blamed car domination in part on the imported American engineering model. In fact, an American engineer even proposed and developed an elaborate plan to convert Amsterdam to the American expressway model. And that in part sparked this rebellion. So there is a difference, even though you're quite correct that particularly in the 50s and the 60s, there was a substantial effort in those countries to accommodate drivers and to prioritize drivers. That's really interesting about the cross-country experience. I was going to ask, what's the anti-Futurama? What is the model for thinking about how to present alternative visions of the future that might reduce future car dependency or promote more diversity in the way our communities are structured? Great question. I think one of the first things we can do is recognize that we have a great teacher in how you change mental models from motordom itself. Now it's also the tech sector, which is teamed up with motordom to sell us Autonorama. They've been very smart for a long time. General Motors was really the pioneer of this. What General Motors figured out 80 years ago was that to attract people to the future you want to attract people to, you have to tell them versions of history that make that future appear to be on history's trajectory. That sounds abstract. I'd like to try to make it a little concrete. When southern states in the U.S. were trying to 
legitimize disenfranchisement of black voters, legitimize segregation, and legitimize white supremacy, people in those states told versions of history that made those things seem right, made those things seem like the way the course of history is running. And so one of the things they did, as everybody knows, is put up statues that honored people who stood for white supremacy, who stood by extension for segregation and disenfranchisement, because they legitimized those abuses in the southern states. Analogously, the number one historian of the automobile in the USA by far has been motordom. They're the ones who teach us the history of the car in the US, and they teach it as the history of a machine, a product that everybody wanted and everybody cherished and embraced. It's not a totally false history. Of course, people did want cars and they did esteem their cars and view them as signs of their own arrival at a place of success or respectability. But the histories are selective. I could give you one example. If you go to Washington and you go to the National Museum of American History, the Smithsonian, it's free, it's taxpayer funded, so everybody can walk through that museum for free. In that sense, it's also kind of like the official history of the U.S. because it's the one that is presented in the nation's museum, the one that is free by virtue of the law. And in that museum, there's an exhibit. It's in the General Motors Hall of Transportation. The exhibit is called America on the Move. General Motors paid $10 million for it. And it's the history of the automobile as a, to be fair, a somewhat complex story with problems connected with it. But it tells it primarily as the story of what Americans always wanted. And it explains car dependency as the product of Americans' choices. So with that kind of a history, and I could give you many other examples of motordom telling that version of history, that kind of history justifies a future where great effort is invested in making car dependency work because this is what Americans want. And in a democracy, the society will go to great efforts to pursue what the majority want. Now, if we want to question that future, that future of sort of high-tech car dependency, I think the first necessity is to question that past. And that will help us to legitimize the future that we want. So. I have found personally, when I don't look at what motordom's version of history is, I can very easily find lots of cases of Americans objecting to car domination in their cities, particularly in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. People, especially mothers, women in general, used to block streets in American cities, sometimes with lawn chairs, sometimes with ropes. They did it illegally to demand that their cities make their streets safer for themselves, for their children. These street protests happened in suburbs, cities large and small, all over the country. They were amazingly common, and they've been completely forgotten. You don't find them in any history book. I've looked. I've really tried to find them in every history book I can find. They are completely missing. And I think it's because, you know, motordom was sure that this account of history did not get into, for example, the Smithsonian Institution. But if you look at the newspapers from the time, it's all over the place. And these mothers were saying, we do not want car domination. We do not want streets that our children can't cross. We don't want to live in a city where our children can't walk to school. 
We don't want to live in a city where we ourselves are stuck at home and can't get anywhere because our husbands have the car or because we don't have a family car. And they were not arguing that cars are bad. They were arguing that we need to live in a society where people do not have to drive and where other modes of getting around are possible and accommodated. Well, it turns out that's what a lot of us are calling for for the future, a more sustainable, equitable, inclusive, healthful, affordable future. I think we can get to that future better and sooner if we can show that that future is actually in alignment with that history that we have really buried. Peter's too modest to to mention this, but he's actually got a recent article on the topic of pedestrianism and protests by mothers and others in the middle part of the 20th century in urban history. And it's called Persistent Pedestrianism, Urban Walking in Motor Age America, 1920s to 1960s, which I commend to our listeners. I've got a question for you, Peter, relating to the new book. The subtitle is The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving. What is the promise and why is it illusory? So the promise is that tech will make car dependency work, even in cities. And it is an illusory promise because the deficiency of cars and the limitations of car dependency are not due to the tech. They're due to the car itself. In other words, the car is inherently limited. Like other tools, it has jobs for which it is well suited. But Most all-purpose tools are not that great for some jobs, and the car is not a great tool for some jobs, including moving people around in cities. And making them smart or high-tech or robotic doesn't solve those problems. Yes, the machine learning is mind-blowingly impressive, but that doesn't make the car work. I think there's a really useful analogy to be drawn from smoking, where The filters that cigarette companies began putting on their cigarettes looked very impressive. Some of the ads from the 60s and the 70s have blueprints of the filters with engineering diagrams of them, where they have baffles and charcoal granules and chambers and so on. This was supposed to impress the viewer that, look, cigarettes actually can work. Cigarette addiction can be a pleasurable and non-harmful recreation. The reason why is this impressive filter? Well, I think of a lot of the tech that's going into cars now as analogous in the sense that it is an add-on that does not make the car a urban mobility vehicle for all purposes. It is still inherently limited and the tech doesn't change that. I love that analogy to (laughs) cigarette companies because I think it shows that there's something about human nature that we kind of want to have our cake and eat it too. There's just the appeal of all the benefits without the costs. And deep down, we know that's almost never possible. So I think if I'm understanding you right, what makes this illusory is not actually that the tech is deficient, that it's not sufficiently advanced yet. It's that we're seeking a technological solution to what is ultimately really a spatial problem of just these are space-intensive uses. Call it a car. It'd be the same if it was something else that's a couple hundred square feet to move one person in a relatively compact space, right? It's just basic geometry. And automating certain aspects of that doesn't fix that. But I think the other piece 
linking back to your discussion of the various futuramas that have been sold over the years, I think the book does a great job of this, is showing that these are visions without people. They're visions with cars that move around. And I think that's probably the most positive spin that could be put on this. We probably could achieve a high degree of automated driving in the U.S. if we simply outlawed walking, taking the bus, riding a bicycle, demonstrating for civil rights in the street, holding a victory parade when your team wins the World Series, letting your children wait for the bus by themselves or walk to school. If we just outlaw all of that, then probably we achieve something like a dedicated right of way for cars that with technology that's either here today or will genuinely be here pretty soon, we'd probably achieve pretty high success in moving people around by car. But the consequences would be essentially zeroing out of public space, interaction, the death of urban civilization as it's traditionally been known. It would really be a deeper atomization than we've already accomplished through the last hundred years of sprawl and so on. And of course, extremely high emissions, right, from not just operating the cars, whether they're gas or electric and producing the power for the electric cars, but also we're going to have to massively widen the roads and pour all that concrete and asphalt and tear down all those homes and churches and schools. So I love this portrayal of it as illusory because I don't hear you to be saying that it's not achievable. What's not achievable is the benefit without the cost. We'd be talking about turning cities into parking lots. But if we did do that, then we could move around. It's just we wouldn't have anywhere to go. You said it beautifully, Greg. And in fact, I think history has already demonstrated that. So dependency on conventional cars, low-tech cars, for that to work to some degree, and I have to say to some degree because it doesn't work very well, but to the extent that it does work, it works because we rebuilt urban America around driving. And it was a very high price to pay. And it signals just how limited driving really is if you have to rebuild your cities and destroy communities and pave much of communities and turn much of urban America into surface lots and garages. That's a signal that you have a deficient technology. I mean, there's an old slur from the 19th century. Somebody was called a barn burner if they would burn down their barn to get rid of the rats. Well, we had that same defect in the 20th century where we destroyed our cities so that cars could move in them, which is, of course, quite perverse because cars are supposed to make cities work, or let's say transport is supposed to make cities work. And so if you destroy your city for the sake of the transport, you've got it backwards. And autonomous vehicles to work well do also require very specific and demanding conditions. I mean, there's a reason why suburban Phoenix has been the one place where we have seen the most impressive displays of what the technology can do. Because not only is the climate right in terms of sunny, cloudless days without rain, but also the lack of pedestrians because the roads were built for conventional cars. And so autonomous vehicles have the risk of sort of locking in 
all of the feelings of conventional cars because just like conventional cars, autonomous cars too need predictable roads that are not confusing, that don't have competing uses, that don't have people crossing them, that don't have cyclists all over them. And presumably, if we want a sustainable future, we want roads that have exactly all of those things. I think that's a great summary of the themes of the book. I wish we could talk longer. I feel like there's a lot more to unpack, but we'll just have to save that for a future conference. Peter Norton, it's been great having you here. The book, the new book is Autonorama, The Elusive Promise of High-Tech Driving, and also check out Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age. Now is the time in our show where we give our recommendations to our listeners, our appendixes. Peter, do you have one for today? Yeah, so this is inspired by Autonorama and all the Futurama's past as well. And the recommendation is for L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, the book published in 1900. It was a bestseller at the time. And that probably most listeners know through the famous 1939 movie, a movie that came out the same year that Futurama was opened in New York. But I chose to recommend the book instead of the movie because there's some wonderful elements in the book that are cautions that are as timely today in 2021 as they were in 1900 when the book was published. So, you know, probably from the story that we have four adventurers, the lion, the scarecrow, the tin woodman, and Dorothy, who are off to a fantasy city, the Emerald City, that's really dazzling and impressive on the assumption that they don't have what they need. You know, the scarecrow needs a brain, the tin woodman needs a heart, the lion needs courage, and Dorothy needs home. And what they find in the city is that this city is ultimately run by a wizard who is in the business of deceiving them and who uses these impressive but deceptive techniques to make them go off and do dangerous things for his benefit. And there's an element in the book that I think is just wonderful. So the Emerald City appears to be made out of emeralds, and it's glittering, it's green, it's dazzling, it's very impressive, and it appears very magical. And the wizard, too, appears to be all-powerful. But in the book, it turns out the city is really made out of ordinary plaster and only looks like it's emeralds because you're not allowed to be in the city unless you're wearing green glasses with green lenses that make it all look like emeralds. And so it's an illusion, just like the wizard himself is a deceiver. And I think this is a wonderful metaphor for where we were with Futurama and where we are with Autonorama. We are being dazzled by impressive technology, and it's deceiving us into supposing that we can't have what we want without the technology. The Emerald City is deceiving us into supposing that it's more impressive than it is, that we can't have what we want unless we pursue these adventures that the wizard is telling us we need to pursue. And above all, Wizard of Oz is warning us that we have forgotten that we already have everything we need. It turns out at the end of the story that the lion actually has courage. He had to have courage to pursue those inventors, that the tin woodman has a heart, that the scarecrow has a brain, and Dorothy has the way to get back home and always had that means. 
And I think the message for us is that we already have everything we need for a sustainable, inclusive, affordable, healthful, equitable transport system in our cities if we will only stop being deceived by this wizard in this glittering, impressive city. That's great, Peter. Thanks so much for that recommendation. Greg, what's your appendix? I love that. I, we can have nice things, basically, and we don't need to bulldoze everything that we care about to unlock them. I am going to break the rules and flag three different things oh that God, I think that <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do it quickly. So the first is an article by a colleague of mine at the University of South Carolina Law School named Bryant Walker Smith, who's written a lot about automated vehicles. You know, he's got more of an engineering perspective, which I've learned a lot from. And one piece he has is called How Reporters Can Evaluate Automated Driving Announcements. And one point that he makes, I think very persuasively, is that it's a mistake to see automation as a binary, that we can benefit from incremental improvements in automatic emergency braking, for example, or blind spot warnings and so on. And arguably, we have been for a century now since the first automatic transmission was developed. And that if and when fully automated vehicles really do arrive, they probably will just be an incremental improvement over what's available at that time. My gloss would be that that's not the most important aspect of urban transportation. We ought to be thinking about the objective, which is making cities nice places to live and productive economic centers, safe and equitable. But I think it's a useful framework. The next piece I'll flag even more quickly because it is self-promotional, which is Sarah Bronin, who is a colleague of mine at Cornell in the Urban Planning School and the Law School. And I have a new essay in the Harvard Law Review Forum called Rewriting Our Nation's Deadly Traffic Manual. And that is about some of the rules that Peter talked about and maybe of special interest to our kind of built environment and legal followers. The last thing is an economics article called Did Highways Cause Suburbanization from about 15 years ago by Nathaniel Baum Snow. So the question he's looking at, as the title implies, links back directly to some of the things that Peter has written about, which is the relationship between highway infrastructure and vehicle infrastructure on the one hand and urban population and livability on the other. And between 1950 and 1990, the population of U.S. central cities declined by 17%, even though the population of the United States as a whole grew 72% in metro areas. So that suggests a huge disconnect. You would not expect that central cities would shrink so much when the metro areas of which they are the central node grow so much. And through various instruments, he estimates that aggregate central city population in the U.S. would have grown about 8% had the interstate highway system not been built, so a swing of about 25%. And I think that's an interesting finding. Notably, that really only looks at the interstates. There were a lot of highways built prior to 1950 that were not interstates or not yet interstates. And so I don't take this as a definitive estimate of the impact of highways on urban populations. But it's interesting to think about alternate histories, something, of course, that we're focused on with today's guest and that Peter is such an expert on and sort of what could have been. And the original plan for the interstate highway system called for highways to stop at the city's edge, which is the standard in many European countries. 
all rich countries have very vast, significant highway networks, but the U.S. is, I think, unique among industrialized countries in having highways that actually go through the core, rip out a lot of the city center to do that. So this is not a total contrast to that because this is a bit of a sense of what was the impact of running interstates through the cores. It doesn't isolate that question, but that's intrinsic to the design of the highways as they were actually built as opposed to the way they were originally proposed. So I commend that to our listeners. Yeah, great, Greg. Obviously, a classic urban economics research. That paper is actually key inspiration for my work with Jeff Brinkman. And the kind of the, the key point of departure for us is that that sort of 25% decline in central cities that Nate estimates, right, that reflects at least two channels, one of which is sort of improved accessibility from the suburbs, making them more desirable places. And the other is declining quality of life, that these urban interstates reduced the livability of downtown and central city locations. And it's that distinction that we're kind of, in my work with Jeff Brickman, that we're interested in. And we find that maybe about a third of that 25%, you can account for with the declining quality of life that urban interstates caused in our central cities. I think that's fascinating because that's exactly the kind of thing that's not accounted for in the models that Peter flagged in sort of the middle of our conversation, right? Is that those are externalities that would just be outside the model of moving drivers as fast as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Is that freeway revolts, the quality of life effects of highways? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. My appendix this week is related to all of these conversations. It's a book by Joseph Demento and Cliff Ellis called Changing Lanes, Visions, and Histories of Urban Freeways. So this is a history of the evolution of the interstate highway program in U.S. cities, in particular, the urban segments of the interstate program, and about the damage that they did to central cities. A kind of key part of the narrative is this interesting moment in the early to mid-1950s where the Highway Act was under debate and formulation in Congress and the emergence of a political consensus that helped push the Highway Act through. What I think makes it a nice dovetail to our conversation today is that Peter's book really unpacks what were some of the sources of that consensus? Where did this consensus come from? And I think that's what's really compelling about Peter's work. Of course, I think Changing Lanes is recommendable on its own as well. So that's my appendix. Thanks for listening to today's show. For Pete Norton, Greg Schill, I'm Jeff Lynn. Our producer is Skylar Powell. Check the show notes for links to some of the articles discussed on the show. Let us know what you think of today's show on Twitter. The show's handle is at Density Speaking. Greg is at Greg underscore Schill. I'm at Jeff Arlen. If you don't already, please subscribe to Density Speaking wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a second to rate and review the show as well. It helps other listeners discover the show. Finally, the views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. The Federal Reserve System or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated.